Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thanks. Um, uh, thank you. It's really, um, uh, I mean, every time I go to speak anywhere, I say it's like a pleasure to be here. But um, this time I really, really mean it. Um, uh, um, uh, more, I mean, I always mean it, but more than usual just because I'm such a great admirer. Of, of, of Rav Shmuley, and, um, and I think he's really one of the really unique Jewish religious figures in the United States. Um, there are, um, uh, and, and I know he doesn't always have it so easy, but um, the, the truth is that there are a lot of rabbis who do a good job in promoting Jewish education and Torah and a deep, in, deep in engagement with Jewish texts. And there are also a lot of rabbis who do a really good job of fighting for social justice and individual rights and human dignity. But there are not actually a lot of rabbis who combine the two in the way that Shmuley does by doing them both so passionately at such a high level and without compromise. And, it's, um, and doing, trying to do both of those things can actually bring you into conflict with people and, and, and ruffle feathers. And anyway, so I really, I, um, I really admire that. And it's a privilege to be speaking here under his auspices. Um, I, um, uh, I, wanted, I think one of the really fascinating things about this moment in American Jewish history is that never has there been a moment in which Jews have, have both had so much power and yet felt so much vulnerability. Um, it's really the, the contrast between those two things, I think, at this moment in American Jewish history is really unparalleled. Um, so if you step back for a moment and you think about the degree of Jewish power that exists, the degree of Jewish power at the highest levels, right? You know, there were in, in Europe, even in earlier parts of the United States, sometimes a Jew would, you know, get lucky and marry into a very prominent Christian family, right? But what, you know, that happened in Germany, for instance. The Jews you know, had a long, pretty good run in Germany. But if that happened, of course, the Jews would assimilate into that Christian. They, would mar they were marrying up, right? And they would assimilate into that Christian culture. And they, people would overlook the fact that they had been Jewish, right? But to see what we have now, right, the president of the United States, right, his son doesn't just marry a Jewish woman. I mean, sorry, sorry. His daughter doesn't just marry a Jewish man, right? But she converts to Orthodox Judaism, right? Or with Bill Clinton, right? His daughter marries a Jewish man and is married under a chuppah with a Jewish man who's wearing a talit, right? There's almost no precedent for that in American, or as far as I know, in world history, right? It's not just that, it, that the, the most powerful people in the United States are not just willing to allow Jews to marry into their families. They're actually willing to embrace Judaism inside their own families. 
right? Um, and that is really a kind of a degree of acceptance um, and at the highest levels. Remember, it was not that long ago. Really, up until the 1970s, pretty much every American president was kind of a casual anti-Semite, right? I mean, it would have been very, very, right? Harry Truman used to say that his, his, you know, his wife didn't like Jews walking in the house, right? Um, it, was the, the, it was not that long ago that the notion of a president of the United States marrying off their son or their daughter to someone who was proudly Jewish and then making Judaism part of their home would have been almost unimaginable, right? And today we now almost take it for granted, right? We've become so used to Jews at the highest levels of government that we barely even bat an eyelid anymore. I don't know, I mean, when, it's like, I think the Treasury Secretary Manukin is Jewish, right? I think people are barely even noticing anymore. It's so obvious. I remember when I was a kid, Casper Weinberger was, was Reagan's, Reagan's uh, defense secretary. I remember, I remember my, my mother and father saying, wait, is he Jewish? Weinberger? And then they were really deflated because evidently he was just Polish. He just had a kind of a Jewish name. But right, that would have been a huge deal, right? You know, today it's become so common. Oh, is the Jewish Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Treasury, whatever, Supreme Court justices. You know, it's, um, again, we just take it for granted now. And that's really remarkable. You know, I, I remember when I was writing my book, The Crisis of Zionism, I asked a senior official, foreign policy official in the Clinton administration. I said to her, what is it like to talk about Israel, to have debates about American foreign policy towards Israel at high levels of the Clinton administration when there are no Jews around? And she said, there are never no Jews around. I mean, again, it's just that kind of that pervasive, right? And we almost take it for granted, right? So this is one reality of the American Jewish experience in 2019, which is quite kind of wondrous when you, when you step back. On the other hand, there is no question that anti-Semitism is rising. Um, it's being stoked to some degree, and one can argue about in which ways, to what degree, by prominent people you know, for whatever set of motives, whether they fully realize it, in both parties to some degree, right? And we recently witnessed, of course, the worst anti-Semitic attack in American Jewish history. Um, uh, and so um, how do these two, how do we make sense of these two things happening at the same time? So what I want to suggest is that there are two different narratives of what's going on inside the American Jewish community, two conflicting narratives coming out of two wings of the American Jewish community. I want to try to explain what those two narratives are, and then to try to end by saying something about how we should relate to both of them. Um, so to understand these two narratives, we have to understand that the American Jewish community uh, is becoming much more and more internally divided. right? We uh, Jews um, have more and more trouble recognizing one another than they did in past generations. Um, and that often plays itself out over divisions on the question of Israel. But its roots are deeper than Israel. It roots, its roots have to do with the lived experience of American Jews, which is to say the center of the American Jewish community is collapsing. The center of the American Jewish community a generation or two ago was conservative and reformed Jews who belonged to synagogues and were moderate Democrats, maybe moderate Republicans, more likely moderate Democrats, right? Which is to say, they were not orthodox, they were not super religiously observant, but they were very affiliated with the Jewish community, they belonged to synagogues, they might have belonged to other Jewish organizations. They were people I would call secular tribalists. Right? 
Their religion, in a way, was the welfare of the Jewish people. But they certainly also cared and had a pretty liberal, open-minded, you know, tolerant view of everybody else as well and wanted to try to you know, take care of them. Um, that center, a lot of people, I think, in this room probably are that kind of represent that center. That center is collapsing, right? So where you see the demographic growth among American Jews, on the one hand, you see a big growth of unaffiliated Jews, right? Jews who are not affiliated with any Jewish institutions, and a significant number, actually, interestingly, of self-declared Jews who do not even say that Judaism is their religion, right? because we've reached such a high level of assimilation, especially among younger American Jews, that there are people, there are lots of, that there are more and more people who say, if you ask them if they're Jewish, they'll say, yes, yeah, I have a Jewish parent, I have a Jewish grandparent, I, I can associate myself with, Jew, with being Jewish, but I also am Italian, or Latino, or I have lots of other things, right? I'm a mix of all kinds of different things. There was this fascinating study they did in the East Bay, which is uh, Oakland and Berkeley, the Jewish Federation, a few years ago. They asked self-declared Jews, these are people who call themselves Jews, what their religion was. 49% said Judaism. 25% said Christianity, right? And another large percentage said they had no religion at all, right? But again, if you think about what life is like for millennials, that's not that hard to understand, right? You've got maybe a Jewish parent, a non-Jewish parent. You've got, you're a mix of all kinds of different things, right? And those people, uh, and what you're seeing, you know, there in this highly assimilated, uh, um, you know, population of people, is people who are um, not that affiliated, by and large, with Jewish institutions, and who are highly universalistic. It does not mean that Jew, Jew, being Jewish may mean a lot to them, maybe really, maybe important to them, very important to them. But they tend, for, for them, Jewishness tends to be a kind of a, an ethical imperative. Like, this is the way you should treat the stranger. This is the way you should treat people who are less privileged. It's not a sense of an us, certainly not an us versus them. It's not a sense of kind of a family, like a circle, you're either inside or out. It's a very universalistic notion of what it means to be Jewish, again, because these are people who are growing up in highly, highly assimilated environments. The other growth that we're seeing is in the Orthodox community, right? Orthodox are a much larger percentage of Jewish millennials than they are of older Jews, right? The, Jew, the Orthodox population has grown a lot, partly because Orthodox Jews have more kids, right? They intermarry less. They also get married earlier, right? Which means that they, they... And so what you're seeing is that you have a very large cohort of younger Orthodox Jews, and that is another kind of wing of the American Jewish community that's growing stronger and stronger. So if you would go to, like, 30 years ago or something, if you went to an APAC meeting, for instance, like, you'd be lucky if they even served kosher food, right? It just, religious observance, the Orthodox community was not a really big part of those institutions. Now, I guarantee you, you know, the APAC policy conference just ended today. If you had gone there on Sunday morning or Monday morning for morning minion, you would have seen hundreds and hundreds of people at morning minion, laying filling, praying, right? The culture of organized American Jewish life is being transformed by the increasing presence of the Orthodox population. And the Orthodox, and so not this, these groups that was the center, these secular tribalists, right? The next generation doesn't have a lot of them, right? What it has is a quite tribal Orthodox population, which is also mostly Republican, right? The Orthodox community now votes about 75% Republican while American Jews as a whole vote 75% Democratic, and a kind of very secular, universalistic population, right? For whom being a liberal, being a Democrat is actually 
big part of what it means to be Jewish. So these two very different wings of the American Jewish community, I think, are interpreting this moment we're in in totally different ways, with totally different stories. And I think it's because of those two different stories that we can start to understand why it is that you may have had this experience that two different Jews can look at these events of the Trump era and respond in so both feel like Jews are threatened, both worried about anti-Semitism, but respond to that fear in such completely different ways, right? With one saying Trump is the problem, Trump is the enemy, Trump, and with others saying no, Trump is the solution, right? Um, so let me try to explain what I think these two narratives are a little bit. I'm just going to grab my water. Um, I think the narrative that you see coming out of the Jewish right says, look, um, there is a kind of clash of civilizations going on in the world between the West on the one hand and especially the world of Islam on the other hand. Um, and the good news is that Jews are now considered part of the West. That, that now there's this thing which politicians always talk about, about the Judeo-Christian this or that, right? That, there, that when people talk about what America is, Republicans, conservatives in particular, they talk about it as Judeo-Christian. They talk about it as Christians and Jews, right? And that this group of white Christians, of evangelicals, conservatives who define the Republican Party, has embraced Jews completely, fully, with a tremendous degree of respect, admiration for Jews and for the Jewish state, for Israel. A deep, passionate attachment to the state of Israel that you see on, among, among conservative Christian evangelicals. In fact, there was a remarkable, there was a very interesting story in Haaretz that came out today, in which quoted Benjamin Netanyahu saying in private to his advisors, I don't need APAC. We have, the Christian evangelicals alone would be more than enough to sustain American support for Israel, right? Oftentimes you find that the most deeply, passionately, even fanatically pro-Israel people in the United States today are not American Jews. They're actually conservative white evangelical Christians. The largest pro-Israel group in the United States is not APAC. It's Christians United for Israel, right? Um, and so, and why do these Christian evangelicals uh, white Christians love Israel so much. Partly, it's theological. It has to do with a kind of theology that seems pretty weird and outlandish to Jews, which is that kind of the Jews must all control Israel so they can return to Israel, so there can be this huge conflagration, and then fortunately for the Jews, they'll all die, but the good news is then the Messiah will come. I remember I had a friend who was, worked for the Bush-Cheney uh, campaign in 2004. He was doing outreach, and, for the, and I remember I asked him once for, that, for the Republicans, and I said to him once, doesn't this theology, like, doesn't it, does it bother you at all? You know, the fact that some of your strongest allies, like, have these ideas? And he said, Peter, it's only a problem if they're right. No? Um, so he was like, let them believe whatever they want to believe, right? You know, it's like, no, no problem for me, right? Um, but I think that's not, that's not actually the only reason that you see such a, a fierce attachment to Israel um, on the Christian right. It's also the sense that there is this global struggle between us and them, between the West and, and Islam, and that Israel is this outpost of the West, like this tip of the spear, surrounded by these enemies, not only of Israel, but of the United States. And this is part of the long still echoes of 9-11. 
the sense that Israel and the United States are fighting the same fight, right, against Islamic terrorism, and that we need to be in it together. And you also see this sense on the right today that when, Ameri when, when a lot of Christian conservative Americans look at Israel, they see a lot of the qualities that they would like to see in the United States. They see a very religious society. They see a society that prizes military service. They see a society with a high degree of social cohesion. They see a society that's very focused on sovereignty, that's not afraid to build walls. And they see a society with a thriving high-tech and business community, right? That's a pretty good, vision, pretty good image of what they would like to see in the United States, right? I mean, I remember when Obama was president, sometimes I felt like you'd hear Republicans muttering to themselves, like, why can't he be our president, Netanyahu, you know? He would be like the kind of guy that we'd like to lead the United States, right? So I think the perspective that you see on the Jewish right is what a gift, right? Here are these people, these Christian evangelicals, like salt of the earth Americans. Their parents maybe were anti-Semitic. They are massively philo-Semitic. They love Israel. They love Jews. And we have to reciprocate this. Like, we can't look this gift horse in the mouth. Like, these, we, we have to take our friends where we find them. Um, and, that, um, and that they are our strongest allies um, in Jewish self-protection and, above all, in the protection of the state of Israel. That these guys will be the people who will stand with Israel through thick and thin, and even if a lot of other countries you know, turn against Israel, even if some liberal Jews turn against Israel, these are our strong allies, and therefore these people are the answer um, uh, to the, the threats that Jews face. Um, and um, so I think that's one kind of strong narrative that you see that Trump has really played into. The sense that you know, you'll often hear people in this, this wing of the Jewish community saying, like, Trump has been more pro-Israel than any other president, right? Which other president moved the embassy to Jerusalem? Which other president recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights? Um, and that's, I think, a powerful narrative that you see in a certain wing of the American Jewish community. Not a majority, but a very significant minority. Um, that Orthodox Jews support Donald Trump at, at, at rates which are as high as almost any other group. In fact, Orthodox Jews, if you look at polling, support uh, Donald Trump at even higher rates than do white Christian evangelicals. Um, um, and that rate and that support is not, has not ebbed. Um, and and those, 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 that wing of American Jews are also likely to say, look, yes, we know Donald Trump is anti-immigration. Um, we know that as Jews, we're supposedly supposed to be so pro-immigration. But look. Is it, really, is it really good for Jews in the United States or Europe to allow lots of Muslims in? They might increase anti-Semitism. They're certainly likely to make the country less pro-Israel, right? And, and uh, immigrants from the developing world in general are probably not as likely to be as pro-Israel as these white conservative Christians. So why do we want to bring in all these immigrants that are going to transform the United States and make it less pro-Israel, right? So that's a view here in one, one wing of the American Jewish community, um, on the right, especially in the Orthodox community. The other perspective um, um, is to say, no, that what it means to be Jewish is to be in solidarity with the stranger, with the marginalized, with the people who are being oppressed. That's our deepest tradition, that it says in the Torah 36 times that you know the heart of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And that is at the core of what it means to be Jewish. Um, and, um, that it's not only um, 
the right thing to do because it's morally right, but ultimately that it's always the people who themselves know persecution, who themselves are marginalized, who will be our best allies in our own self-protection. That Jews should never ally with the people on top because it's the people on the bottom who actually will stand with us because they also know what it's like to be oppressed. And this is the perspective that you see on the Jewish left, especially among a lot of these younger, more universalistic um, uh, Jewish kids who are caught up in the wave of millennial activism that we see. And um, for them, Benjamin Netanyahu and his vision of Israel is everything they don't want the United States to be, right? They don't want to be the United, they don't want a country which is, uh, which is religiously, uh, which, is, which is kind of religiously exclusive in the way Israel is. They don't want America to be a militaristic society. They don't want America to be a country that builds high walls, right? They see Netanyahu as essentially a kind of an ally of Trump in trying to create societies that they really don't want. Um, they, um, they uh, tend to um, see this group, for this group, the, the answer to Jewish safety always comes first through supporting human rights. Um, and so ultimately, they, they tend to see Israel through the lens also of human rights and believe that ultimately what's in Israel's best interest is to support human rights for Palestinians, that Israel will be better off, Israeli Jews will be better off if Palestinians are not oppressed, if Palestinians have basic rights, because ultimately, if Palestinians have a reasonable sense of human dignity, then life will be better for Israeli Jews as well, because oppressed people tend to be people who commit acts of terrorism. And I think for these folks on the Jewish left, the, the example of what happened in Pittsburgh in some ways illustrated the narrative most clearly. For people on the Jewish right, the fig Ilhan Omar is a really critical person, right? Because what do you see? You say, aha, okay. She's left-wing, she's a Somali immigrant, she's Muslim, uh, and now she's fomenting all this anti-Semitism, right? That plays into the argument of the, of the Jewish right. But the Jewish left looks at something like Pittsburgh and says, aha, you see, this is, this is, this is the real explanation of where anti-Semitism comes from. What happened in Pittsburgh? This guy in Pittsburgh got really riled up about this idea that there was this caravan, right? He bought into this, this kind of notion on Fox News, this myth that there was this caravan coming from Central America that was going to invade the United States, right? So his original animosity, was, it appears, was not towards Jews. It was actually towards Latino immigrants. But there is this weird thing about anti-Semitism, where anti-Semitism often depicts Jews as the kind of the evil genius, right? The stereotype of Jews tends to often be different than the stereotypes of people of color, right? People of color, it's a racist stereotype that tends to denigrate their intellectual capacity, see them as inferior. But anti-Semites often see Jews as kind of evil geniuses, kind of smarter than everyone else, but using that intelligence for for, for evil. And so this guy in Pittsburgh fixated on the idea. He thought, wait a second, these Central Americans are coming to invade the United States, but surely they couldn't have organized it on their own, right? They're not capable of that. So who was really behind all of this, right? And he came up with the idea that the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society was behind it, right? Which would be kind of laughable if it weren't so horrible and tragic, right? Um, but what he under, and this is, there's an old history of this, right? You saw during the civil rights movement that oftentimes segregationists would say, you know, the, the blacks couldn't really be organizing their own civil rights movement, right? It must be that the Jewish communists are kind of behind it, right? Um, this notion of Jews as the kind of evil genius, and you see George Soros often kind of put into this role now. 
So, and and there's, a, there's a little kernel of truth here, right? The little kernel of truth is that Jews do tend to be more pro-immigrant than other white people, given our own history, right? Um, and, so, um, and so this guy responded to his anti-Latino bigotry by then turning it towards Jews and, and, and killing all those people in the Tree of Life synagogue. So for Jews on the left, the lesson of this is you can never distinguish anti-Semitism from other forms of bigotry. You can't try to say, we will be the darlings of the conservative white Christian evangelicals and to heck with those Muslims and Mexicans, we, we're, we don't need them. Because they argue the bigotry that starts with Mexicans or Muslims or whoever always turns back and ultimately affects Jews as well. And that, you all, that what, what Jews have to do is bind together with all threatened and marginalized groups for our own self-protection. To which Jews on the right say, that's a really lovely story you're telling yourself, but it just happens that those people are the most anti-Israel people in the United States, right? So that's the kind of argument you tend to see um, going on. And um, my heart is really with that left-wing argument, um, but I wanted to try as well as I could to try to do justice, I think, to the argument of both sides, because I think many of us live in communities and in families where we have people who are on different sides of these debates. And we have to try to find ways of understanding one another and speaking in a respectful and civil way to one another. And I think we also we all need to think about how we can challenge ourselves to move outside of our comfort zones. And so I would end by saying that I think the folks on the Jewish right and the folks on the Jewish left each have a challenge. The folks on the Jewish right have the challenge, I think, of remembering that, um, that the Torah doesn't start with the Jewish people. Right? The Torah starts with human beings. Right? The first characters in the Torah, um, Adam and Eve and even Noah, are not Jews. Right? That they're human beings. That one of the things the Torah is trying to tell us is as passionately and deeply committed as you may be to the Jewish people and to Jewish welfare, that our own tradition says that there is a fundamental importance to universal human life beyond just the Jewish experience that you must always value, that we're not just a tribe. We are a group of people who are brought together by a set of ideals, and among those ideals is that all people are fashioned in the image of God and that we have to care about them, and that, that Jews have to move outside of their comfort zones we are now a relatively privileged, relatively pop powerful population, often quite easily to insulate ourselves from those people who are really on the front lines as immigrants and people of color who are really suffering the greatest brunt of, of, of attacks in Trump's era. And the challenge for people in the Jewish right is to move beyond their comfort zone to actually meet those people and see what they're experiencing and develop a sense of empathy towards them. And that includes Palestinians. It includes Palestinians. Because um, one of the, the things that I think is most problematic about the way that the Jewish discourse about Palestinians takes place, especially in more conservative circles, is that it's always talking about Palestinians and never talking to Palestinians. So there's no opportunity for Palestinians to humanize themselves, for you to be able to see Palestinians as normal people that you could identify with rather than the enemy of our people. And the challenge for the Jewish left, I think, um, um, 
is, to re- is, 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 the, is the flip side of that, is to say that the beauty of our tradition is that it's not a tradition, a purely universalist tradition, and it's not a purely particularistic tradition. It's a tradition that values both things. The Torah starts with universal human beings, and then it moves to the Jewish family, right? The family of Abraham that becomes, the, in Egypt, the Jewish people, right? Our tradition tells us that, that we both have a family that we have the right to have special obligations towards, right? A family writ large in Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, and yet we also have to recognize a certain commonality between us and all human beings. And if the challenge for the Jewish right is to not forget the universalistic side of that, the challenge for the left is not in its universalism to forget the idea that it is okay for us to have a special concern, a special sense of concern for the welfare of other Jews. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're not a liberal. Just as you have a special concern for people in your own family, it is okay to have a special concern for the welfare of Jews. Um, that, 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 um, that other communities do as well, and that's part of what it means to be deeply affiliated with a community. And I think that one of the things that I love most about what uh, Rabbi Shmuley has created here is a place in which that tries to live out that creative tension, that balance between being deeply rooted and connected to Jewish tradition and the sense of common welfare that we should experience as people who come from the sense of common ancestry, but also to see Judaism as something that we can bring out in a moral imperative to fight for justice for all people. So I'll stop there and happily continue the conversation. As shared, in case you came late, we're going to move to interview style. AJ is, uh, has some cards and paper, uh, excuse me, pencils. So if you want to write down a question, if you raise your hand to him, he will give it to you, and then raise your hand after you write it, and he will pick it up from you again. Okay, AJ, there's some hands up here. Okay, so to, just to get started, yep. is this one on here? Yep. Let's see, thank you. Uh, very insightful. So um, there's an article you wrote in 2010 that mm. folks still talk about, mm. uh, which identified the fact that among young American Jews, young American liberal Jews, the high majority, um, that given the choice as to whether to affirm uh, their Zionism or their liberal values, mm-hmm. when they're in conflict, they will check the Zionism at the door. Uh, and that's a gross oversimplification. The article, I think that basically is something. Right, yeah. Cool, right? Um, how is that, in, I guess, almost 10 years now? Yeah. How has that changed at all? Um, is it, would you make the same argument? Um, yes, I, I think that um, that phenomenon is now more fully developed. It's playing itself out now, which is to say um, that um, the Zionist consensus among American Jews right, um, didn't always exist. Right? Um, in the, and I was saying this earlier, in the early part of the 20th century, not all American Jews were Zionists, not at all, right? A lot of American Jews were not Zionists. The Orthodox Jews tended to be, in, not be Zionists because they believed that there should be no Jewish state until the Messiah came. That was the way they read the Talmud. Reform Jews tended to believe that Jews were a faith, a religion, but not a people. And the Reform Movement said in 1885 in this famous document, the Pittsburgh Platform, that America is our Zion. We have no desire to return. And what happened in the middle part of the 20th century, in the 30s and 40s, was that Zionism became a consensus position among American Jews because, above all, of the Holocaust. Because of of whatever your theological and ideological position, 
when the Jews of Europe were being destroyed and the world didn't give them refuge, didn't save them, the notion that there needed to be a Jewish state became virtually self-evident. There needed to be a place for Jews to go in distress. And even if you are my generation, um, I grew up in the 1980s, um, you saw that same narrative, Zionism of refuge, Zionism of Jews fleeing anti-Semitic persecution and going to Israel. I remember the Soviet Jews coming, I remember Natan Sharansky walking down the airplane and being greeted by the Israeli cabinet after all those years in the gulag. I remember the, plane, the Ethiopian Jews being saved, you know, they were in terrible distress um, uh, and, and really at risk of, they walked for days to get to these planes that Israel had sent to. That was the Zionism of refuge. And, and if you're bought into that, the notion that you need an, a Jewish state so Jews in peril have a place to go, even if you don't like what the Israeli government does, even if you think the Prime Minister of Israel is a schmuck, right, doesn't lead you to question the notion of a Jewish state. Right? And that's what you saw in the 1980s. Is there were American Jews who were passionately upset about the Lebanon War or about the First Intifada, and they didn't like what Yitzhak Shamir was doing at all, but they never questioned the notion of Zionism because Zionism was fundamentally about refuge. What is different about a lot of younger American Jews, millennials, is that they have never seen in their lifetime any large-scale exodus of Jews fleeing state-sponsored anti-Semitic persecution and going to Israel. And they themselves cannot imagine needing that themselves. And so when they feel alienated by what the Israeli government is doing, because they feel like the Israeli government is oppressing Palestinians, um, they are more willing to ask the kinds of questions that their parents and grandparents really didn't ask, which is to say, why do we need a Jewish state? Isn't it fundamentally discriminatory to have a state which, where not everybody is Jewish, but it's got a special set of obligations and privileges for Jews. I certainly wouldn't want America to become a Christian state. Why should it not be a secular state with equality for all people? And um, what I was arguing in that piece was that unless the organized American Jewish community creates a space for people to try to reconcile their liberal values with Zionism, to in, which may mean uh, creating a space for criticizing the Israeli government, for saying the Israeli government's version of Zionism is not actually living up to the liberal values that we believe in, not, li not living up to the principles of Israel's own Declaration of Independence, which promises complete equality of social and political rights irrespective of race, religion, and sex. Unless, if, unless you tell younger American Jews that they can be critical Zionists, they can be Zionists who challenge the Israeli government, who, who support Palestinian rights, if you give them a choice where you say the Zionism that they're being offered is a Zionism that has to be uncritically supportive of the Israeli government and has to sh not be concerned about Palestinian rights, they may in large numbers choose liberalism instead of Zionism. And I think that's, we're seeing that more and more among younger American Jews. And you know, there is, uh, there's this line that the children remember what the parents wish to forget. And sometimes what you're seeing among young American Jews is that the children are remembering that there was not always a Zionist consensus, that there were alternatives to Zionism in American and world Jewish discourse uh, in the early part of 20th century. Uh, there were prominent people like Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt and, uh, and um, 
uh, Henrietta Soltz, who founded Hadassah, and Judah Magnus, the president of Hebrew University, who supported a secular binational state in the 1940s. And we are seeing those voices starting to emerge among some young American Jews. And needless to say, it's very destabilizing for the organized American Jewish community, and it's very destabilizing within individual families. Great. So uh, we're going to ping pong between a whole bunch of questions. And I've been told my mic is better, so we're going to share this. Okay. Um, firstly, I think one of the internal threats we see is the rapid growth of the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, um, as, the as in many ways the future of the state. Uh, this, is a, this is a community that does not wish to serve in the army, does not support the establishment of a secular state, does not support women's rights, uh, disregards all um, non-ultra-Orthodox Jews, and uh, holds generally a position of Jewish supremacy that the dignity and rights of Gentiles is lower. How do you see that playing out in the coming decades as that population expands? And um, a similar internal threat, if you will, is this growing resurrection of Mayor Kahan and the Kahanist force. And how fringe is that um, versus how large? And uh, based on what we saw being welcomed into a coalition recently, and are there other internal threats you would, you would pose uh, that would, should also be of concern? Wow, so those are really good questions. Um, so, you know, Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion and the first generation of Zionist leaders were very typical mid-20th century nationalists. The leaders of Pakistan were actually the same way. They believed that religion was an anachronism. Right? That, 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 that history was moving away towards secularism, and that the kind of religious expression, existence of Haredi Jews was, could be preserved in Israel as a kind of a museum, but that it would rapidly die out in the face of modernity. Interestingly, Pakistan, which was founded as a Muslim state by secular Muslims, also kind of had the same view, right? They were also deeply surprised when in fact it turned out that actually new generations you know, emerged with much greater religious fervor, right? And so the early Zionists made this, I think, tragic miscalculation, which was essentially that uh, Haredi Jews could remain basically on the government dole, the government would subsidize them, not, do, not require of them any of the things that would actually bring them into society, um, and in fact, what's happened under those auspices is, the, is not just the Haredi population has grown very dramatically, but that it's basically grown in such a way that Haredim largely live off government subsidies um, and are not forced to actually integrate into the world, and in many cases could not integrate into Israeli society. There might be lots of Haredi Jews who actually might be quite happy actually to live a different way of life, but they've not been, very consciously, not been trained by their own, you know, if your schools don't teach you math, right, um, then it actually becomes very difficult to function, and that's part of the ways in which Haredi Jews can, are imprisoned by their own communities, right, not really given the option of really, make, of really having a choice. So, I don't think the critical question is whether you ask Haredi Jews to serve in the army, although I know a lot of Israeli Jews feel that very strongly because they're very conscious of their sacrifice. I don't actually think the Israeli army needs all of these new people, and frankly, just the kashrut issues alone of trying to bring those, I think, would be boggled the mind. Um, I think what Israel really needs to do is, first of all, it needs to do something which, by the way, I don't think New York State does a very good job of either. It needs to actually enforce basic curriculum standards for schools, right? There's nothing wrong with learning tons and tons of Gemara, 
uh, Talmud, right? But you also should be learning a basic curriculum of math, science, and the, but the government has to be willing to take the political fights to actually teach people those things. Then they might have some capacity to actually function outside of Haredi society if they wanted to. And the second thing is that they need to work, right? Um, they should not be able to be subsidized by the government. And if when people are forced to work, then actually, you know, and this is a perversion. This was not the way life was in Eastern Europe, right? It was not like in Eastern Europe, everyone was simply sitting around all day, all the men studying Talmud or pretending to study Talmud while their wives went off to work, right? Maybe they were studying a little bit in the morning or at night, and in the day they were going off to work. That's actually the way traditional Jewish Orthodox society existed. This is a perversion, right? Um, and so I think that for putting Haredim into a position where they need to work would also bring them into contact with the broader society in a way that would be good for Israel's economy because they're very unproductive right now economically and also I think would mean that those Haredim who want to leave and want to live a different life could potentially do that. Um, on, the, on the Kahana point, um, look, this particular party, Otsma, that Netanyahu was willing to make an alliance with is small. But if you look at the polling, sadly, if you look at, for instance, the polling by the Israeli Democracy Institute, which does a big polls of, of values among, among Israeli Jews, you find that there are very strong, uh, there are strong Kahanaite um, perspectives. Um, so for instance, if you ask Israeli Jews, would you like the government to encourage Palestinians to leave the country? Um, you would find between you know, maybe a third, 40%, even up to 50% of Israeli Jews who say yes, right? Part of the reason is that the Haredim say yes at very high levels, right? And the Dati, the modern Orthodox, say yes at pretty high. If you ask questions like, would you live next to, uh, uh, would, you live, would you have an Arab neighbor? Would you be okay if your children had an Arab teacher? These kind of questions. You can find pretty reliably between a third and half of Israeli Jews who give pretty troubling answers to those questions. Um, now, the, the why is that? They're complicated. It's partly the trauma, of course, of all of this conflict that has produced a great deal of hatred and racism. I think it's also partly things that you see in the school systems, particularly in the Haredi and Dati school systems. I mean, we talk a lot about what the Palestinians are teaching their children, and we should be concerned about what the Palestinians are teaching their children, but we also have to think to some degree also about what some Israeli Jews are teaching their children. One of the things that always makes me chuckle, just parenthetically, is that people often say, have you noticed the Palestinian maps never show the green line, right? And I always want to say to them, have you been to my kid's Jewish day school? Like, have you taken a look at the maps that we show our kids? They're also maps that don't show the green line, right? We also have to look in the mirror ourselves at sometimes in terms of the values that we're teaching about respect for the other. And so I think that's something that unfortunately we've seen um, uh, take root in parts of the Israeli Jewish world and that needs to be kind of fought against. Great. So um, I have five parts here okay. which are pretty similar. Okay. So they're all on the topic of relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-Israel stuff. Okay. First one, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Yes. Are they mutually exclusive? Right. Um, actually, you wrote an article recently on that. Yes, you can also yes. check out. Uh, can you be pro-Israel and anti-Semitic? Okay. Um, can you be against Israeli's policies and not be anti-Semitic? Okay. Um, how do I, as a leftist Jew, address anti-Semitic rhetoric from the left? Mm. Um, how does the Orthodox community rationalize the Nazis on the fringe of the conservative evangelical community? Mm. And I don't think those there. Okay. You want to look them. Please explain both sides on white supremacy. You said that the left believes Trump has encouraged, and what does the, the right believe Trump has done here? 
Okay. So I hope those are close enough that yeah. I close together. Okay, yeah. great. All right, those are really good questions. So um, I do not believe that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are the same, or put it on, I do not believe that anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitic. Now I would say that's probably a minority view uh, in, the, or in the Jewish community. There are a lot of people who are very smart who I respect who disagree with me. But I will tell you why I do not believe that anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitic. Of course, there are anti-Zionists who are very much anti-Semites, right? You can think of some prominent examples. Louis Farrakhan is an anti-Zionist and anti-Semite. David Duke is an anti-Zionist and anti-Semite. The leaders of Hamas are anti-Zionist and anti-Semite. So, of course, there are plenty of people who are both. But I do not believe that the two categories are the same for a variety of reasons. First of all, we can think of people who are passionately anti-Zionist who we're pretty sure are not anti-Semitic. So for instance, the Satmar Hasidim, right? They're the largest Hasidic group in the world, and, uh, and they're passionately anti-Zionist, right? Um, uh, the, both Rebbe Teitelbaums uh, are very, very anti. They, they, they believe that, that, the to that, 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 that Jew the Jewish law forbids the creation of a Jewish state, and they have held fast to that view, even as a lot of other Haredi Jews have kind of wavered, right? And you can say a lot about the Satmar, but they're not anti-Semites, right? Um, on the other hand, we can also pretty clearly think of um, Zionists, passionate Zionists, who I think are anti-Semites, right? So if one famous one was Arthur Balfour. You've heard of Arthur Balfour, the, the person who wrote the Balfour Declaration, famously, right? Um, uh, which said the Jews have a right to a homeland in the land of Israel, right? So before he wrote that, in uh, 1917, in 1905, he had been one of the prime architects of the Aliens Act in Britain, which basically shut the door to Eastern European Jewish immigration to Britain. And Balfour actually said, a couple years after the Balfour Declaration, that one of the reasons he thought Zionism was such a great idea is it gave the Jews somewhere to go so they wouldn't have to be in Europe, right? If you think about it, it's not that illogical, right? If you don't want Jews in your country, the idea of having, of having another country of their own may actually be quite attractive. The Polish government in the 1930s, which the, the ruling government party in Poland was an anti-Semitic party, didn't allow Jews into that party. They had a lot of Jews in Poland. The government in Poland didn't want those Jews in Poland. It was thrilled with the idea that Jews might have a state, so the Polish Jews would leave. They were so, uh, Timothy Snyder, in his book Black Earth, the historian at Yale, talks about this. It's really kind of remarkable. The Polish government was, pro, was so pro-Zionist, they actually had Polish military officers train Zionist militias. They trained members of the Irgun and of Beitar on Polish military bases because, so that Jews could win their fight against the Palestinians, so then the Polish Jews could leave. That was their idea, right? So I think it's not that hard to think about anti-Zionists who are not anti-Semites and anti-Semites who are not anti-Zionists, but in fact, big Zionists. Now, the more difficult question, right, has to do with um, uh, people on the left, right? Um, and, and I guess I would say this. I am not surprised that Palestinians are mostly anti-Zionists, right? Palestinians have had a rough experience with Zionism, right? Zionism has been, for the Jewish people, I think a tremendous blessing. For the Palestinians, it's not been so great, right? Um, uh, they were, whatever you want to say, I'm, and I'm not exonerating Palestinians at all, but Palestinians were, or the people who now call themselves Palestinians, were the large majority of people in this territory in the late 19th century, right? 
there were, there were some Jews, it's true, there have always been some Jews living in Jerusalem, in Sfat. They weren't really Zionists, they were old traditional Jewish families. Then a lot of Jews started to come from Eastern Europe with the waves of Aliyah, of Zionism, which leads to this, basically, this national struggle between these Palestinians who were developing their national identity under the Ottoman Empire and then under British mandatory control, and the Zionists who come mostly at that time from Europe, later more Jews from the Middle East, and the, and the Palestinians lose big time. Right? They lose big time. They lose and they lose and they lose. And in every, virtually every individual fa Palestinian family, you have, a fa you have a story of that trauma, right? Of being made refugees, of having families scattered now all over the world in refugee camps in Gaza and the West Bank. And so I am not surprised that Palestinians are anti-Zionists, right? Now, if they express that anti-Zionism by saying Jews don't have the right to live here, they should go back to where they came from, or they need to live as second-class citizens in an Islamic state, I would say, yes, they're all also anti-Semites. If they read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, I would say, you're probably an anti-Semite, right? On the other hand, if a Palestinian says, and this is what a lot of the, you know, they're Palestinian members of the Knesset. We call them Arab Israelis, but they're really Palestinian citizens of Israel, and there are a number of them in the Israeli Knesset. And they came forward, a number of them, uh, a few years ago, and said, introduced legislation, and said, we would like this not to be a Jewish state, we would like to be a, a state with equality for all people, right? With no privileges for one group or another, right? Um, because remember, Israel, even inside the Green Line, has tremendous privileges for Jews over non-Jews. So for instance, any Jew in this room can go to Israel and become a citizen on day one. Right? Israel has a very open immigration policy for Jews. It has almost no immigration policy for non-Jews. So if you're a Palestinian and you want to marry someone who's a Palestinian who lives in Jordan or Lebanon or Canada and have them come and become an Israeli citizen and, live and be your husband and wife, it's virtually impossible. Right? So they said, I want this to be an equal country for Jews and Palestinians under one law, no preference for either. I'm not prepared to call those people anti-Semites. Right? They are anti-Zionists but they're not, in my view, anti-Semites. And this comes out also my own experience. I, I know a lot of Palestinians, some of them pretty well, right? And I understand the depth of their anti-Zionism, but I feel like I know them well enough to know that they're not anti-Semites. Um, and I think one of the dangers of equating anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is whether we realize or not, by doing that, we essentially make all Palestinians into anti-Semites. It, it makes them into, Jew haters, and it essentially dehumanizes and demonizes them. Which is not to say some of them aren't anti-Semites, but to essentially, to essentially de facto say all Palestinians are anti-Semites, I think is a tremendous barrier to us being able to see them as fully human. Okay, uh, in case you're still here, if you have more questions, raise your hand, I'll read you uh, cards as well. We have plenty to deal with here, just wanna make sure we hear voices. Um, so what's the breaking point for liberal American Jews on, on their alienation. Um, we will have some, we'll see older liberal American Jews that no matter how much they feel marginalized, will still support. Right. Um, but whether it comes to, okay, you can't have the Western Wall. Mm. Egalitarianism is not valid as a place to pray. Right. Or we don't reject your status as a Jew. Right. Your reform conversion isn't valid, your conservative conversion isn't valid, maybe even your liberal orthodox conversion isn't valid. Right, right. You, 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 that, that there's, you're outside of, of, of even mm. being considered Jewish. Um, you can't voice critiques against mm. the state. Whatever, whatever the case is, your policies don't represent um, what would speak to the American Jewish uh, uh, public. And, and kind of the list goes on. Again, there'll be older Jews of a different narrative who will say, you can kick us around all you want on these mm. points. We're still in with right. our money and right. our advocacy. Yeah. 
But what is the demographic difference of those who actually throw in the towel? Like, what marks the difference of that population? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I, I don't, it's not the same for every person, and it's not an all-or-nothing thing. I, I think that what I notice among a lot of younger, non-Orthodox, liberal Jews is they're not anti-Zionist, but they're just not sure. They're not, they're not sure. They, they, they are, um, they're uncertain about whether Zionism and liberal democratic values can be reconciled. Um, and they are, you might say, sometimes tempted by what they hear from Palestinian activists around them. You know, there's a narrative, often I think you tend to find in some elements of the American Jewish community, that the anti-Zionist uh, or, or kind of critics of Israel on campuses are making life incredibly difficult for, for Jewish students on campus. Um, that, there's this tr that there's this kind of Jewish students are really besieged. There may be places like that. But I have to say, in my own experience, actually on the ground, it looks pretty different. Um, often, what it looks like is that some of the people who are most fiercely raising those questions on campuses are Jewish kids themselves. I, I went to speak at, um, uh, I went to speak uh, at um, a college, I won't mention it recently, but it's a liberal arts college where they had been voting on a BDS resolution. And a lot of people I knew, parents and older people, who alumni, were very, very worried about what it was like for Jews on, those, on this campus. And I went to speak at the campus, and I talked to a bunch of the Jewish students. And I said, do you ever feel uncomfortable expressing pro-Israel sentiments on this campus? And some of them said, yes, we do. And I said, well, look, who are the people who make you feel un uncomfortable? And they mentioned a Judaic studies professor, right? And they mentioned, the Jewish, the kid who was leading the most passionate BDS leader on campus, who was also one of the most involved kids at Hillel, right? Like, this is some of the things that exist among Malus, which is hard for older people to imagine, right? There is an element of an intra-Jewish civil war that you sometimes see among millennials. And there's also a way in which Palestinian kids and pro-Palestinian kids, remember, one of the differences between millennials, I think, and older American Jews is that they're more likely to interact with Palestinian or Arab and Muslim students on campus, because there are more of those people in the United States. Most of those communities came post-1965. And so you find that, you know, I was saying this in the earlier group, that, you know, the Palestinian kid may say to the Jewish kid, look, you're from New Jersey, I'm from New Jersey, right? In New Jersey, there's no religion in the government. We're all equal. It's a secular government. We wouldn't want it to be religious. Why can't it just be that way in Israel and Palestine, you know? And I don't say that I think they're Jewish kids for whom be precisely because they're so deeply attached to the notion of an America where there's no religion in the government, they don't want America to be a Christian country, that they are open at least to considering that. They don't run screaming from the room, let's put it that way, in the way that older generations might. I think that for me the most decisive uh, thing that is starting to happen and could happen is the death of the two-state solution, right? Um, and, and that's why the message that I would try to carry to people who are more on the Jewish right, who are worried about the declining Zionist consensus, is to say, if you want to preserve the Zionist consensus, you have to preserve and fight for the two-state solution. Because if you confront younger and liberal American Jews with the, a Jewish state that is permanently controlling millions of Palestinians who lack basic rights, and their choices are one state between the Mediterranean and the Jordan in which millions of Palestinians live under Israeli control but are not citizens, live under military law, can't vote for the government that controls their lives, 
and have to get a pass from the Israeli military to go from town to town, and the idea of one state which offers, in theory, equality for everyone, you're going to lose that argument with a lot of people. That the way to preserve a support for a, dem for a Jewish state is to, uh, is, to, is to maintain the possibility that this Jewish state will not be controlling millions of people who lack basic rights in the West Bank and also in the Gaza Strip. And I can talk more about why I believe Israel actually does control the Gaza Strip more if you want later. Um, and I think that the dangerous tipping point that we could hit if Benjamin Netanyahu is re-elected there are, I think, 30 member people on the Likud list. You know, the way the Israeli elections work is the party comes up with a list, and then depending on how many votes it gets, it gets a certain number of seats. I think of the top 30 people on the Likud list, 28 of them support annexing part of the West Bank. Right? That's the end of a two-state solution. Right? They wouldn't annex the whole West Bank. They would probably annex Area C, which is 60%, which is the large, uh, large territories, leave the Palestinians in the concentrated population centers, kind of like this archipelago of different Palestinian towns with Israel controlling the land in between. But there will be no Palestinian state if you annex areas 60% of the West Bank. That'll be it. And so that Netanyahu is not, uh, um, uh, has not said he supports doing that. But what he has said just in the last couple of days is that the precedent of America recognizing Israel's control over the Golan Heights suggests that America would be okay with Israel, also, that America would also bless Israel's annexation of part of the West Bank. And I think if that happens, it will be something of a tipping point, because we will really no longer be able to talk about the two-state solution. And for some people, that won't really be a problem. But for younger, a lot of younger American Jews who are on the left, it will be an existential problem in their ability to actually identify themselves as Zionists. So picking up right where you left off, um, how do you still see that there is viability for a two-state solution? I mean, if there's nearly a million who live beyond the Green Line, mm -hmm. Jewish settlers mm -hmm. who live beyond, beyond the Green Line, what, um, what gives, not even, I don't want to say hope, right. um, but what gives any practical data that this could still be achieved? Right. You know, um, Gershom Gorenberg, I don't know if any of you know, he's an Israeli journalist. Um, he has this line where he says, if you support a one-state solution, because you think a two-state solution is too hard. You're like a guy who's drifted off from shore and says, I can't swim back to shore, so I think I'm going to fly. Right? So his point is, the two-state solution is unrealistic compared to what? Right? Um, um, so the, the part of the reason the two-state solution is very difficult right, is you have a, 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 a larger population of Jews living in the West Bank. I want to say parenthetically, in my mind, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Jews living in the West Bank, right? And I think it's important to distinguish this. It's not as if there's something that Jews don't have the right to live in the West Bank. The problem with Israeli settlers living in the West Bank is the fact that they live under a different legal system than Palestinians, right? They have full rights as Israeli citizens, and their Palestinian neighbors have no basic rights, right? Which um, That's the problem. It's not that Jews live in the West Bank, right? So were there to be a Palestinian state, I think it would be entirely appropriate for Jews to say that, for, that Jews have the right to live in the West Bank as equal citizens in a Palestinian state. And actually, a number of Palestinian leaders have, in fact, said that Jews could live in the West Bank under those circumstances, but it would mean a very different kind of lifestyle than they have today, right? Because today, they live in ethnically exclusive communities where Palestinians can't, can't go. Um, but 
So one reason the two-state solution is considered difficult is that you would have to, some of those Jewish, Jewish population would not be willing to stay and live in, in, in a Palestinian state, and you, the Israeli government would essentially have to uproot them. Um, but if you think about a one-state solution, right, you're not just dealing with the potentially uprooting of, of you know, maybe 100,000 settlers. You're talking about the entire state of Israel in some ways being up for grabs, right? Because Palestinian refugees will lay claim to every part of Israel as parts of, as places where they or their family came from, right? So if you're worried about the, the, the difficulty of uprooting people um, uh, from the West Bank, the one state solution in a way doesn't make that problem easier. In some ways it actually makes it just that much more difficult, right? You have a kind of much more massive kind of question of how you're gonna deal with all these different land claims. The other reason I think the two-state solution, um, that there may still be some sliver of hope for the two-state solution is, it is still, according to polling, the thing that both Israeli Jews and Palestinians want more than anything else, right? It is, there is still a strong nationalist desire among both populations to have a state of their own. Um, and so even though neither side wants to give the other one what it wants, there is still a hunger for a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. In both communities, at least at this point, there's not actually that much of a hunger for one secular binational state. There's a strong desire among each population for its own state, right? Remember, the reason for partition, the reason the idea of partition came along in the first place in the 1930s was because you had these two distinct populations that had very different national visions, right? Uh, that, and, and those national identities have only hardened and strengthened since that time. Um, the, um, it's also important to remember that a lot of the Jewish settlers who live in the West Bank are not there for hardcore ideological reasons. They're simply there because the Israeli government made it cheaper for them to live there, right? And if, it were, if the Israeli government were able to be able to create a situation where they could have a house inside Israel itself, many of them would take that opportunity, right? So it's not necessarily that they are always so as entrenched as they appear. It's simply that the Israeli government, rather than trying to give them a reason to move out of the West Bank, has it, rather than given them lots of reasons to move to the West Bank by subsidizing settlement in all these different kinds of ways. Uh, it's been pointed out that, there's, that there are growing fascist trends emerging around the globe. Countries get lumped together like Russia, Saudi Arabia, but also uh, the American administration uh, and Israel. Do you think that is fair? Um, and what do you think is uniting those forces? Hmm. So, I mean, the term fascism is a complicated term, which means different things to different people. So let's put aside the term fascism. And let's just say that there is a form of exclusive nationalism, um, uh, uh, which is emerging in a lot of countries, right? A nationalism which is based on the idea of a kind of mythologized romantic vision of this country in the past when it was kind of ethnically or racially or religiously pure, right? And a desire to kind of go back to that, right? So you see it in the United States in this kind of, you know, make America great again. What does Donald Trump kind of mean by that? What does his supporters kind of mean? Well, maybe it's kind of like an America like the 1950s before all these immigrants started coming in, when white people were clearly on top, when men were clearly on top, when LGBT and transgender people weren't running around, you know, making themselves known, right? It's that kind of notion of a kind of romanticized notion of kind of a pure, kind of ethnically or racially or religiously pure country, or at least one, and if, if you had certain minorities, they knew their place, right? 
You see versions of this in, in lots of ways. You see it in India, for instance, where under Modi, in the BJP, where it's a kind of romanticized notion of Hindu nationalism, right? Of a kind of a proud Hindu country. And you say, well, yeah, but like, you know, a large minority of this population are Muslims. And they say, yeah, well, that's fine as long as they know their place. It's a Hindu country, right? Or in, in Hungary with Orban, where he says, you know, the pure Hungary is a country that can never allow any Muslim immigrants. And by the way, we should try to get rid of the Roma, the gypsies as well, because they also undermine the purity of Hungarian national identity, right? Um, and um, at its extreme form, you see this with this monster in New Zealand, right? He had this idea, completely ahistorical. No historian uh, thinks there's anything to this, but that Europe used to be this pure Christian white place, right, that kept the Muslims out, and now the Muslims have come with their invaders, and, um, and, and he's going to fight them again. And so you see a certain version of this also in Israel with a notion of kind of um, uh, a very exclusive nationalist identity, right? Which has very, wh what I think Israel needs to do, what I think Israeli national identity needs to do is to become more open. There be, needs to become more opportunities for Israel's non-Jewish citizens. Remember, 20% of the Israeli population inside the Green Line, not talking about the West Bank, not talking about Gaza, are Palestinians, right? To me, what Israel needs to do is become more inclusive of these people, make them feel more truly Israeli, more truly represented by the government. And Yitzhak Rabin was the last Israeli prime minister who really worked to try to do this. Um, um, what I think you see with Netanyahu is the opposite. Every time Netanyahu campaigns, he campaigns by running against, by demonizing Israel's own Arab citizens, right? You know, one of his slogans um, right now is Bibi, not TB, right? TB is, is a reference to Ahmed TB, who's a Palestinian member of the Knesset, right? And essentially you're saying, you know, keep me so you don't have these Arabs having a seat at the table in government. Why shouldn't they have a seat at the table in government? They're Israeli citizens. They vote. Thank God they vote. Think how much worse it would be for Israel if they didn't vote in Israeli elections and instead took arms up against the state, right? Um, they should be made to feel more included. Their communities should be taken care of better in terms of the allocation of government resources. So I think it's this narrow kind of exclusive nationalism that we see growing up as the result of cultural change, of demographic change, of people who feel destabilized, who, are, who feel like the hierarchies that, that, you, that they used to have have been destabilized and are, are searching for a kind of a notion, a throwback, a return to some romantic notion of when things were stable, when the country was their country. So, so this, so my, my Facebook feed uh, exists of two different populations. Mm. One are uh, liberal progressive American Jews, and the other, having spent years studying in Israel, are uh, religious Zionist Orthodox Jews in Israel. And what they experienced this last week, I saw two totally different reactions to the Golan. Mm. One was this in this narrative of, oh, this continues to be horrible, uh, mm. what's happening unilaterally. And the other was, oh my, oh my goodness, I think the Messiah has come. <laughs> right? like, this happens on Purim, right after Jerusalem, mm. and I think like this is like the Messianic era if there's ever been one. So I wonder if you could just unpack the whole Golan situation for us a little bit. A little bit of the history, why is it happening now, are there any political implications to what has happened here? Right, right. Okay, so in the 1967 war, Israel won that war, took a series of territories, right? 
It took from Egypt, it took the Sinai Peninsula and it took the Gaza Strip. From Jordan, it took the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And from Syria, it took the Golan Heights. The Sinai Peninsula gave back to, to Egypt in the, in the Camp David Peace Accords when Egypt recognized Israel. Of course, Israel still controls the West Bank. I would argue it still controls the Gaza Strip, although others would disagree with me. We could talk about that. Um, and it controls the Golan Heights. Now, there was a, a notion, um, there were negotiations that took place during the 1990s that maybe Israel would give back uh, all or part of the Golan Heights as part of a peace agreement with Syria. It would be like with Egypt, land for peace. Syria would recognize Israel, Israel would give back part of the Golan Heights. That never came to pass. Then the Assad regime, as we know, kind of, Syria fell into civil war, and uh, most Israelis said, well, you know, given the, given what the unpredictability of what's happening in Syria, surely we couldn't give the Golan Heights back because it's a very militarily advantageous position, a high land, and who knows, ISIS could be in, in control of this area. That's really not that controversial. I, I don't see that many people really even on the left right now saying, you know, Israel's got to give up the Golan Heights, give it back to Syria right now. I think the, um, um, the left, by and large, is not as animated by the Golan Heights at all as it is in the West Bank, simply because there's not as much of a human rights issue. There are some populations, there are a lot of Druze, for instance, who live, but and, and, you know, some of them would maybe would have preferred to live in Syria, some of them might be happier living in Israel. You don't have a large population in the Golan Heights because of Israel's uh, taking over, who basically are under military occupation, who lack rights, right? So morally, it's not nearly the same kind of scale of a problem, right? I think the concern, so for people who think Israel should always control the Golan Heights, this is great, like take it off the table. America said you, you control it, that's good. I think for the critics, partly what they're concerned about is the precedent. They're concerned about, about what precedent it sets if Israel can take this territory by force uh, in violation of international law, and rather than having to settle it according to some kind of negotiation, it can just be settled unilaterally by America blessing this taking of the territory, because partly they're worried that this is a precedent for the West Bank. Um, and I think that's where some of the anxiety that you see about what happened with the Golan Heights um, is, is taking, is, is, is partly is that, it's that, that Israel might do the same thing with the West Bank. I think it's also partly a response to this feeling that like Trump just does these things the Trump is giving Netanyahu a political favor to try to help him win re-election. Um, and some of those people don't want Netanyahu to re win re-election. Um, and some, so I think some of the criticism is coming from that. Oh, so picking up on this last point, someone wants to know if we have any data on the motivation of President Trump in these, in these moves. One, what is the role of Kushner versus the role of evangelical Christians, APAC voters, voters and lobbies? Yeah. Or is there another uh, factor at play here? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I don't really know. I think Trump knows enough to know that something like the Jerusalem decision and the Golan Heist decision will be very popular among his base. You know, popular among, among Jews who love him and Christians who love him, Republicans. And you know, Trump is also um, surrounded by people who are gonna reinforce that message. You know, historically what happened was that a lot of presidents, as Trump has reminded us, promised to move the embassy in Jerusalem. The reason they didn't was the State Department, right, said, 
please don't do this. It's going to cause us a lot of trouble with all of these Arab governments. Right? That's the State Department's job. They call up the leaders of Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? And they say, no, 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 no. That'll make relations with our country much worse. And they go to the president and they say, look, you know, this is going to cause us a lot of tsaras if we do this. Right? One of the things about the Trump administration is that it doesn't work the way that other governments work, right? Like the, those, the State Department barely functions, right? Like, so these normal mechanisms of government are not functioning. We barely have ambassadors in a lot of these countries. So Trump can just kind of ignore this stuff more. And Trump is also surrounded by a group of people where there's, a, I would say, a very narrow and limited perspective, right? Um, one of my favorite pieces of journalism that I've ever read was this story that was in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency about how Trump chose his Israel advisors, right? How he chose um, Jason Greenblatt um, and David Friedman, right? Um, now Greenblatt is in charge of the Middle East Association and Friedman is the ambassador to Israel. So the story goes, because it's just so perfect Trump, right? The story, it, the story was it was in the run-up to the New York primaries. And Trump goes to his office one day and he sees that there are a ton of Jews in his office, right? A bunch of Jewish activists and also some Jewish journalists have come to ask his view on a bunch of questions having to do with Israel. And Trump, according to the reporter, sees that there are all these Jews coming to talk to him about Israel. And you think about the way Trump thinks. Trump thinks, you want Jews? I've got Jews. So he calls Jason Greenblatt, right, who is his real estate lawyer, who also happens to be a modern Orthodox Jew, and he says, Jason, come down here to this meeting. And Trump says, I want you to meet Jason Greenblatt, my lawyer. He knows more about Israel than anybody. He goes to Israel all the time. Um, and so they literally asked him questions like, what's your view about Jewish settlements? And Trump says, uh, Jason, what do you think about this? Right? Now, Greenblatt is just a real estate lawyer from Teaneck, New Jersey. Right? Um, um, uh, you know, he gets the same APAC newsletter that everybody else in Teaneck, New Jersey gets. He's not a scholar of the subject. Right? But at the end of the meeting, Trump, after the meeting, Trump announces his Israel advisors, and they are Jason Greenblatt and David Friedman, who is his bankruptcy lawyer, who helped him when he got in trouble with his casinos in, um, in Atlantic City. Right? So, Trump has essentially surrounded himself. It's a very transactional view, right? It's like he knows that Jews are a constituency. He also has Kushner in his own family. And he's handed off these issues, basically, to Friedman and Kushner and Greenblatt, who may be very nice people. I, I don't know any of them personally. But there's no representation in his, in his group of circle of anyone who really has any experience with the Arab world with Palestinians, how things might look from a different set of perspectives. So it's a very, very parochial loop. And then you add on to that Sheldon Adelson, who also has a lot of influence. Because Adelson, interestingly, you know, there was a, Steve Bannon has talked about this. Adelson was a very early and very steadfast supporter of Trump. Uh, even at, you remember there was this moment when the um, Access Hollywood tape came out, where even some very prominent Republicans were saying, you know, we're getting off this bus. And Adelson really stuck with Trump. And he gave Trump a lot of money, and he won a lot of influence. And so I think these are the people who Trump is listening to, and it's not a very uh, broad-minded view, uh, and it has virtually no representation from the other side. Great. So we have about seven or eight minutes left. I want to squeeze two more questions into the time if we can. Um, the, these two, I think, go together. Are you worried about the liberal wing of American Jewry becoming so universalistic and secular that they or their children will um, will stop identifying as Jews altogether. 
so that in another generation there'll be nothing left except Israel or diaspora orthodoxy. Um, somewhat related, um, uh, liberal Jews in America who feel they're treated with hostility by the Jewish establishment mm. as self-hating Jews mm. for having critiques mm. and even airing those critiques. Mm. What do you think their, um, their, their role should be in Jewish communal life? Um, that's a great question. So um, I, I think for, um, for the American, liberal American Jews who feel excluded or feel um, sometimes by the American Jewish establishment, I think the, um, uh, the crucial thing for them is to show up in Jewish spaces, um, not just uh, not to allow themselves to be excluded, um, um, to say we we to, to to say that we we want to be part of this community, but not only to that to express a sense of connection and solidarity and caring for the Jewish community. I think that um, sometimes what's lost in the message of people who are critics of Israel, as you can tell, I am one of them. Uh, people who are on the Jewish left, I'm one of them. Is that what's lost? What other Jews don't hear from them is a sense of solidarity, a sense of, of connection, a sense of we're all in it together, a sense of love. They only hear the moral outrage, right? And the moral outrage, I think, is legitimate and necessary, but it has to be connected with something else. And in my own personal experience, people are much more willing to listen, or at least to be somewhat civil and respectful, if they recognize that your challenges, your criticisms, are coming out of a sense of connection, um, uh, that you feel that you're part of this people and you're invested in its welfare. You know? um, and sometimes the Jewish left doesn't always do a good jo enough job, I think, of conveying that. Um, um, the, uh, on the question of, of the future of kind of liberal, Jew, more secular Jews in the United States, yes, I think that's a, a, really, uh, a really significant concern. You know, it's not um, that the, the thinning out of the content of Jewish identity and Jewish life, right? To the point where it just becomes our own version of St. Patrick's Day, right? What does it mean to be Irish American? Well, you go get drunk on some green beer once a year, or you know, you're Italian and you eat some eggplant parmigiana, right? Like, I, I, we have our own version of those things, but it's not thick enough, really, to to be, I think, to be sustainable and to really rich. In Judaism and being Jewish should be a guide to live. There should, you should be able to find in Judaism things that help you figure out how to live a good life. Um, ideally, what I would want is that American Jews can go to Jewish tradition, to Jewish texts, and see things that help them figure out life's most difficult questions. And I think that's what the organized American Jewish community has not done a good enough job of fostering. The Orthodox community has done a good job of that because it's focused on Jewish education um, intensively. Um, uh, and, and so kids are come out equipped to be able to interact with Jewish texts. But oftentimes, uh, outside of that community, people are, don't have that facility. It's all just something obscure happening in a foreign language. And so what's sad to me um, is not that there's intermarriage. I, I think that you know, people should, love is, if you can find love, I, I, would, I'm ne I would never question anyone who's, who's found love. You know? Love is a very precious thing. People find it in all kinds of places. You can create beautiful, wonderful families. The thing that I feel sad about is not that there's intermarriage. It's that oftentimes, young American Jewish kids are not even educated enough 
about Jewish tradition to know what it is that they're giving up if they decide not to transmit it to their own families. Because they've, they've never actually been given a sense of what its value is. And so they can't even really make an informed decision. Um, and I think that um, the organized American Jewish community has often felt more comfortable raising money for Israel, more comfortable raising money to commemorate the Holocaust than it has raising money for Jewish education. Um, and I think that's been, to some degree, a tragic mistake. Not to say Israel's not important, and not to say the Holocaust, remembering the Holocaust is not important, but those are vicarious experiences for young American Jews. Jewish education is what could help them understand, I think, how to live a meaningful and rich Jewish life today. And if a, if a, if a community is spending more money on memorials for its dead than schools for its children, I think it says something problematic. And the truth is that Jewish education in the United States is often either inferior or unaffordable, or both, right? Um, um, and that, and, and in, even compared to other diaspora Jewish communities in Australia, in Canada, in Britain, we have a very, very weak Jewish school system and a very low rate of Jewish literacy. Um, and to me, that's something that really worries me a lot. And, um, and it's one of the reasons that I think what Shmuley is doing is so important, because we really need charismatic Jewish leaders who are invested in finding ways of bringing Jewish education alive for people, because I think ultimately it's just not realistic to expect in a, in a radically assimilated environment for young American Jews to care deeply about things they don't know anything about. Right? Why do I not care about Australian rules football? Because I don't understand Australian rules football. Right? The pr a precursor for deep connection is some basic level of understanding. And oftentimes, we are putting young American Jews in this crazy position where we're asking them for a deep sense of caring and commitment without giving them the basic literacy and understanding upon which that commitment will be based. sadness and social alienation in the community today. Mm. Um, and for me to say that as a, as a white male, uh, relatively traditional rabbi, um, I can only imagine how many others feel it. And it comes from, from two places. One is that I love Israel. I, I, I love it in my kitchen, in the depths of my being. I love Medina Israel, the state of Israel. I love Eretz Israel. I love the land. I love Klal Israel. I love the Jewish people. I love Torah Israel, our, our Torah. I'm like in like deeply in love with all of it, um, in the deepest sense. And I also am so sad by the state of those affairs, of policies of the state, of of uh, violations, ethical violations on the land, of the, the state of the Jewish people globally. Of, and, uh, of Torah, the lack of engagement in Torah. And I find in both circles, I'm either alienated in, with, it, personally, that within communal infrastructure, it's like rah, rah, we have the truth. Now we just got to get more money here and more people here to say rah, rah, the truth. And I feel like, wow, like, can we step back and be a little bit critical here of some of the challenges and think through them rather than just rah, rah. And then in another sphere, I feel like I'm in a place where there's not that Ahavat Yisrael. There's not that love of our family. 
There's not that deep kishka sense of how much is at stake mm. in our traumas and glories we've inherited. And so I feel a little bit homeless. Mm. Like I don't know where to go that feels safe yeah. as someone who feels concerned about the big questions and also in love with the foundation that everything is built upon. And I wonder for you, and I don't want to impose mm. that, that mm. for you, but if in, any, in your sense, if you have any sort of personal pain or struggle that's associated with these, with these challenges. Um. Yeah, I think you put it really beautifully, and I, and I feel very much the same way. I mean, um, I kind of made a decision um, when I started writing more publicly back in 2010, um, uh, publicly critical, you know, publicly critical stuff about Israel, and, and it produced a pretty, you know, some pretty hostile response by some people. I mean, some, one person, at our synagogue in Washington, who I really loved and still love, someone I really, you know, think really highly of and felt close to, I sent him a man, I sent him the manuscript, and um, I didn't get a response. And I, I finally said, "Hey, well, you know, what do you think?" And he said, uh, "He said, for the sake of our friendship, I'm not going to tell you what I think of your book." You know, and that was like that was very, I was really, you know, I still remember that very, very strikingly. Um, and um, you know, I had a parent in my uh, daughter's class in school who said, um, it's really hard for me to see you walking the halls here. Um, um, uh, you, know, that, uh, you know, that he said that that's really difficult for me. And um, I've had people say that to me in synagogue. One guy said, it really disturbs my davening to see you on the other side of shul. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I was like, um, but um, uh, so I, I uh, but I also felt like I didn't, the, in a weird way, like, Sometimes even those communities where people like really hate my politics were the communities that I actually felt most comfortable in because I felt like people were very deeply committed to Judaism and to Jewish learning. And, and so I, I wanted to be part of those communities, even though those communities haven't always, always wanted me, you know? Um, uh, and, and, um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I totally, I, I kind of, I, I, I do that, I do feel that tension. Um, and, um, but I think for me, the most uh, beautiful and hopeful and inspiring moments are feel like when I feel like the two things come together, you know? And sometimes I feel like uh, they come together in like really unexpected ways, you know? Like, um, uh, because I find I make assumptions about people that sometimes are not right. Like, I remember uh, back at Kesher Israel, the Orthodox synagogue we went to in Washington, after I wrote my piece, this woman came up to me. I didn't really know her very well. I figured she must be, you know, pretty right wing. She was like very typical. Orthodox young Jewish woman, and she said to me, you know, some of the things you were writing are things I've been thinking in my private, to my private self for many, many, many years and just felt like I couldn't say, you know? And that was really meaningful to me. You know, I've had kids from um, Orthodox Jewish day schools, you know, um, kind of email me out of the blue, you know, and, and say like, your writing is really helpful to me because I, I actually feel like I just don't feel morally comfortable with all the things that I hear. And it's, it's really valuable for me to hear a voice like yours that's challenging those things, but also from a place of Jewish commitment. Um, and I think for me, what sustains me, because I feel that sense too. I mean, when I go to Israel, I feel like these very weirdly conflicting emotions. Like, I feel on the one hand that this is such a miracle that this society was created. I mean, to just walk, I mean, you just look at the names of the streets. like. Every name of a street is a reference, an echo of Jewish history. And you have Jews screaming at one another in, you know, from every corner of the globe, you know, um, uh, you know, in this 
you know, these Jewish communities that have been isolated from one another for hundreds or even thousands of years that are now kind of living cheek by jowl one another. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And I remember a few years ago, I was in Israel, and I just wrote something on Facebook about just how overwhelming it was to be in Tel Aviv and just to be part of this Jewish society. And my friend Nadia, who's Palestinian, she just wrote me this note saying, you know, I, I, you know my parents are from Jaffa, and I can't go and have that same experience there. You know, it's like your victory and your beauty is based on my, on my, on my suffering and 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 my non, you know, and my and the trampling of my own people. And so then I felt guilty for that. And and it's it's hard to hold those two things. The the thing that I, one of the things that really though inspires me is when I see Israelis, who I feel like are, in a really authentically Israeli Jewish way trying to make their own country live up to the Jewish ideals that they believe in. And, and, and I have these kind of heroes, you know, that are Israelis, that are people who, for me, represent the best of what it means to be an Israeli patriot, not only because they're willing to defend Israel against its external enemies, but because they're willing to challenge their government, even though it can be really, really challenging and dangerous for them. And I remember once I was at a, a meal with um, an Israeli historian who had been at Princeton. She was a very, very successful historian. And she said she was going back to, be, uh, to live in Tel Aviv. And I knew that it was hard for her because she's very much on the left. She's deeply upset by what Israel's doing. Um, and I said, you know, I said, do you, any, do you see any, like, any hope for, what, for, for changing Israel and ending the occupation? Um, and, and she said, no, you know, I feel like I'm an abolitionist in the 1820s, you know? Um, and she said, but I, but I really feel like I don't have the right to give up that struggle because Israel is so important to me, you know? Um, and so I felt like, wow, you know, if there are people like that, then, then the role for people like me here in the United States with all the ease and privilege that I have in the United States is to try to help those people and support those people in whatever way I can. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.